as we've mentioned, we're going to pick back up in the story, in the narrative of the Jewish people, as we go into chapters 19 and 20 of the Bible and look at here a very significant event, um, which is the giving of the 10, what? Commandments. So, with that, let's just have a short uh, prayer and then we'll lead into our story today. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father in heaven, as we open your word, we are here today, Lord, because we want to know you more. We want to love you more. We want to learn of your love for us. And I pray that as we look at this significant chapter in chapter 1920, that you will reveal yourself to us today. And although we read the story of the people thousands of years ago, that it is as relevant and as practical for us right now. I pray that you'll bless us and uplift Jesus Christ. Let everyone say, Amen. And as many of you are familiar, when we go into the story of uh, the Exodus, we move into the area of Sinai. And it was interesting, when I was uh, on a Bible lands tour in the Middle East, uh, up on the mountain here in Sinai, I remember having this discussion with the group of people I was with, and the discussion was this, is this the real Mount Sinai? And that question has been a question that a lot of people have asked uh, through the, the centuries, as where exactly was the mountain of God. And as you know, we discussed, there's two real possibilities. There's many mountains that people think is the possible Mount Sinai, the place where God descended and gave the law to Moses. But there's one particular mountain that's really come up in archaeology recently that has captured the attention of people. And it seems to be a, a mountain that's known as Jabal el-Laws, Jabal el-Laws, or the mountain of the Ten Commandments, or the mountain of the law. And it's not found, as you see, in the Sinai Peninsula here, but rather over here in Jordan. And in this country, they have found what they think is where the real Mount Sinai is. And these archaeologists or amateur archaeologists went in a bit sneakily into Jordan and uh, went in there to try and find out if this mountain, if there's archaeological evidence that this mountain is in fact the mountain of God, the very mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And as they went in there, they found some amazing stuff. In fact, here is a picture of that mountain. Now, what do you notice about the top of the mountain? It's black. Isn't that interesting? It's the highest mountain in the area, and the Bible says that the Sinai is the highest mountain, uh, Moriah. And not only that, but it's got a scorched top. All the other mountains in the area are, are normal, but this one mountain is scorched on the top. That got their attention. And not only that, but as they went there, this was in an Islamic country, they noticed that that one mountain in the middle of the desert was fenced off by the government. They had guards guarding this mountain in the middle of the wilderness. And as they went around this mountain and they looked, they found these massive altars. And on the altars, what do they see in Egyptian hieroglyphs? Golden calves. Here in Jordan, they don't have cattle over there. So they find these Egyptian, and all around they started finding Egyptian carvings and stuff in the wilderness, and it really has sparked a lot of interest in this area. So the question is still out, and of course it's difficult for people to get into this country, and they're in no hurry to give Israel any more legitimacy to the land, and so there's a lot of issues there. But it's an interesting study when we look at this issue of the mountain of God. And here today, as we go into the chapter, we're going to see why it is that people are so interested in this mountain? What is so significant about what happened at the mountain of God or Mount Moriah or Mount Sinai? And so in chapter 19, we pick up our story in the Exodus. Here, they've been traveling in chapter 19 of Exodus and verse 1, it says, in the third month, so how long have they been traveling out of Egypt? Three months. So in the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. 
So here we have the children of Israel, possibly several million people uh, moving in this giant caravan to the very mountain of God, to the base of Mount Moriah. The, the previous chapters we've seen that God had miraculously fed the children of Israel with manna and with water, and He had taught them to depend on Him in the story, in the Exodus. So here they are, camped, millions of people. It's like big camp on steroids, right? This is huge. Millions of people camped out. You can hear the noise all around the mountain and the people are there. And verse 3, And Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. So God had a message for the children of Israel, verse 4, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to what? To myself. Straight away, God is reminding them that the type of God that I am is that I have brought you out of slavery so that you can be with me. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned and they were cast out of the presence of God, God has been working to bring us back to Him. All through the Old Testament, God has revealed to us as a God who is intimately connected, whose every, His heart beats with the passion to reconnect with us. This is the story of the gospel. It is a God who wants to reconcile, wants to reconnect with you. Amen? I brought you out of Egypt so that you can be with me and I can be with you. This here is the introduction to the story. Verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my what? Covenant. So here, as we saw in the video, God right here on Mount Sinai makes a covenant, a handshake, an agreement with the children of Israel. In fact, we know that this is almost like a wedding service. God marries Israel. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel that God marries Israel here. And we see here, this is the stipulations or the agreement that God is putting forward. He says, you keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God makes this agreement. He puts forth the stipulation. He says, look, if you do this, if you be my people, I will bless you and I will give you and all these things and I will be a protector for you. Here is this covenant, this agreement he lays before the children of Israel. And notice their response in verse 8. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will what? We will do. Here, God marries Israel. What do you say when you're getting married? Will you take this man? Will you take this wife? And then you say, I do, right? Uh, I do. We will. We will enter this covenant together. And so here in Ezekiel, it says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into a what? A covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. God wants to make a covenant with you and I. He wants to restore a broken relationship. In fact, if you want to summarize the entire gospel in one word, uh, Ellen White, I love the word she uses, she says, restoration. What's that word? Restoration. The entire Bible is summarized in a kingdom lost, a Satan who has torn a relationship and a God who's reconciling that relationship back together. And here in the story of Israel is the story of you and I, where God wants to reconcile us. He wants us to be His again. He wants to enter that relationship with Him again. But what was at the heart of this covenant was that God was saying to the children of Israel, although God will bless them, although God will be with them, although God will give them lands and nations and, 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 and many uh, children... Their part to play was to be a light to the world. I want you to notice this covenant repeated in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, 
keep your finger in Exodus, Isaiah 42, here Isaiah picks up and repeats this covenant or explains the covenant as what God was calling the children of Israel to do. Isaiah chapter 42, and we're going to look at verse 6. Isaiah 42 and verse 6. Let's notice what God says about this covenant to the children of Israel, because this covenant, this uh, stipulation is really for you and I as well. Isaiah 42 and verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the who? So God was saying to Israel, He's saying this, although Abraham, when I first met him, he kind of had a view of God, not fully, and I introduced myself to him and I revealed myself to him. And I'll pause on this point. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, the world fell into darkness. What did the world fall into? Darkness. The world fell into a position where their eyes were blinded to the knowledge of God. We had rebelled against God. We, we didn't know a full knowledge of God. And that is why when we look all around the world, people have an understanding of God. Paul tells us that there's a knowledge of God in everybody's heart. But what we do is we end up and we can kind of see God in creation. And, and, and he says what happens is all these other nations could see it, but they worship the creation instead of the creator. And they made idols and, and other things. And they, 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 he says, you're close. And when, in Acts 17, when he was standing before the Greeks, he would quote their poems to them and said, you're so close, but this is God. In other words, what God is saying, he says, I am going to reveal myself to you as a nation. That is a privilege. I'm going to reveal myself to you so that you can reveal me to who? To the world. You will be a light to the Gentiles. Does that make sense? So part of the covenant was God was going to use the children of Israel to be a light to the world. In fact, notice Isaiah chapter 60, repeat it again, but adding this, this depth here, Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah again repeats this covenant stipulation, Isaiah chapter 60, and we're going to just read verses 1 to 3. And notice this beautiful language of God in, in this covenant that He has with the children of Israel. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3, and it says, Arise, shine, for your what has come? For your light has come. And the glory, by the way, the word light and glory are synonymous, because the word light is the character of God revealed. Does that make sense? When you see the word light in the Bible, it means the character of God revealed. So, arise for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover how much of the earth? All the earth. It shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your what? to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. In other words, this promise that God had made and made and reminded and reminded was like, all these blessings that I'm giving you, I'm giving it to you so that you can give it, who? To who? To the Gentiles, to others. But let me ask you guys a question. Did Israel hold their part of the bargain? You may remember the scene when Jesus turns up and he comes into the temple and there's a part in the temple that is specifically set aside for the Jews to pray for the Gentiles. What, who are they to pray for? The Gentiles, the other nations who don't know God. And you know what they said? They said, oh, we're not really using this. Let's just put tables in there and we can use this to buy and sell sacrifices for the temple and we can trade money here. Do you think Jesus liked that when he turned up? And what did Jesus do to those tables and that money? He walked in and he turned them over and he says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. This is supposed to be a house of what? Prayer. The call that God had for the children of Israel was with all the blessings, with, with all the knowledge that they had, was to take that knowledge and to declare it to the world that God is what? Love. 
You know how they were to do this? God was about to tell them in the giving of the Ten Commandments. You know, the Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, that God is what? Love. And if, we're to, if, if the children of Israel were to reveal God's character to the world, the Bible tells us that the law is love. The law is love. In fact, it says in Romans 13, 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the what? Of the law. So, the very Ten Commandments that God is about to give them in Exodus 20 is His transcript of His character. Amen? The law is God saying, this is who I am, and if you keep my commandments, you will be, in essence, reflecting my glory to the world. If you keep my commandments, you will be that light to the world. This is the agreement I make with you. If you keep my commandments, then you will be a light to the world. You will be a light to the people who don't know me. By keeping my commandments, you are, in a sense, loving God, and you are living out that love. If Israel was to represent God, then they had to be like God. It makes me think if Israel said everything God says we will do and they failed, then what's the use of the law? This is what we're going to look at. Joshua told them that they would fail to keep the law. And if we turn back to Exodus 19, I want to move into this scenario as God now moves into giving the law to the children of Israel. Exodus 19. And verse 9, after they've entered this agreement with God, in verse 9, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon the Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Moses here, and throughout the Exodus, is a type of Christ. Uh, what we see is the children of Israel, when they saw the cloud, which was a pillar of fire by night and a shade by the day, move upon Mount Sinai and God says, I'm about to come upon the mountain in the third day, prepare yourselves because I'm going to come close to you. Wash your clothes, cleanse yourself, prepare yourself to meet God. And after 400 years or so that the children of Israel have been in Egypt, to, to in the sight of a holy God, in the sight of the holiness of God. They were struggling to, to be in the presence, in the glory of God. And they told Moses, you go and talk to him. You go and intercede for him. And thus we see Moses as a type of Christ for us. Jesus Christ is our interceder in the Bible. He is the very one who walks into the presence of God. He's revealed to us throughout the Scriptures as the one who would represent the human race before God. And here on Mount Sinai, we have this symbolism, this parallel to the heavenly sanctuary with God interceding for you and I. And so God descends upon the mountain and the Bible says that when He comes down on the mountain, there is a great earthquake, there is lightning and fire and all the people tremble in the presence of God. I mean, can you imagine standing uh, hypothetically right next to a mountain that's going to explode? You know, this is the, the presence of God descending upon the world. And as God descends on the mountain, the people are afraid, the people are terrified of the presence of God and they hide, they ask Moses to go and speak to God for them. But we know that what God is doing is He's revealing His glory, His power, 
And it's in this moment that he's trying to come to them that he is revealing his awesomeness and his love and his goodness towards them. And so we have, it's in this moment that as he descends upon the mountain, that God gives the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. And I want to run through the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 with you because we don't have a lot of time today. And to look at what the Ten Commandments are all about. In, with Adam and Eve, when God created man... He created them for relationships. The Bible says He made them in His image. And God is love, therefore He made you and I for love, for relationships. What sin is, sin is the breakdown of a relationship. Did you get that? Sin is self. And whenever you bring self into a relationship, the relationship breaks down. What God is wanting to do with you and I is He's wanting to restore that relationship. But He's got to get rid of that sin. He's got to get rid of self so that we are other-centered love. And the Bible tells us that the Ten Commandments is summarized in two great commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two great commandments hang all the law and the prophets, as Jesus Christ said. Uh, The first four commandments deal with our relationship to who? To God. The last six deal with our relationship to each other. The first four uh, have to come first. If you can't love the Lord your God, you'll never have the capacity to truly love your fellow man. Because to love God and to be loved by God gives you the fuel and the change to even love your fellow man. In fact, the Bible tells us that love comes from God. So when God gives the law to the children of Israel, what He's essentially doing is He's writing out for them, this is what love is. This is what love is. And this Ten Commandments, this holy law, is, the, is a transcript of the very character of God. We get to see the very character of God. And what's interesting is that so often when we think of the word law, what do we think of? If I say the word law, we think of positive or negative? Usually negative, right? Because the law, when we think of the law, we think of restriction. And what Satan always does through the Bible, what he's always done, is he likes to come along to God's law and he points out the minor restriction and subjugate all of the freedom that God gives. But when you truly understand the law, you'll say, as James does, that it's the law of liberty, the law of freedom. And it's interesting to us to think of the law as a law of freedom. Because often we think of the law as restrictive. But what God's law is, what God does by giving His law, is He places forth for us the way that everything is set up, the way that things are meant to be. In in essence, He's explaining Genesis 1. And let's run through the law together. And I'm going to use the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, to explain each of the commandments as we run through them in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets. So let's run through. Now, before we look at the first commandment, I want you to notice something very important in Exodus chapter 20. Before God asks them to keep the law, I want you to notice what He says first. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then He goes into the Ten Commandments. Why is it that God says that first? Why does He remind them of Him bringing them out of the land of Egypt? The very reason why we keep the law is because God saved us. Did you get that? Even back in the Old Testament, the reason why the children of Israel kept the law was because they were already saved in God. You don't keep the law to be saved, you keep the law because you are what? Saved. Often we think that if I just do this and if I just clench my fists and I discipline myself hard, I'll have this experience with God, right? That's what the children of Israel kept making the mistake of doing. The power to keep the law of God comes from a heart that has been saved by Christ. 
We keep the law because God has brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the slavery of sin, and He is placing the law in our hearts. And we'll come back to this in just a minute. But Jesus goes on, or God goes on to explain the Ten Commandments. This is what love looks like. This is the call that God has for your life and my life. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. The first and most important law, and here in Patriarchs and Prophets, it says, Jehovah the eternal self-existent, uncreated one himself, the source and sustainer of all, is alone entitled to supreme reverence and worship. Man is forbidden to give to any other object the first place in his affections or his service. In other words, The first thing we have to do in walking this new life, walking this righteous life, is to put God at the center of our life. This is the heart, this is the core, this is the first step, is to go, God, you're my all. God, you're everything. In fact, to keeping the commandments is like bringing your uh, sacrifice to the altar and saying, here, I'm yours, to give your all. And to truly keep the law of God is to totally submit and to go, God, I'm yours. You are my God. I will place nothing else in my life. And you know, even though we come to church, it's so easy in our lives to put other things before God. We can come to church. We can come and listen to the Bible. But then we go and through the week, there's a thousand other things that take our affections, that take our attentions away from God. But God has said, you shall have nothing before me. I am the Lord your God. Whatever we cherish that tends to lessen our love for God or interfere with the service due Him or that we do, make a God. We may not have idols today, but we can certainly make idols of things in our life. And I praise God that He's merciful with me and with you. Amen. Because we do. It doesn't take long for things to creep into our life where we fall away, where we forget God. But the first and important step of the Christian life is to have God at the center of our affections, the center of our thoughts, the center of of our hearts each day. The second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. The second commandment forbids the worship of the, uh, sorry, forbids the worship of the true God by images or similitudes. Now, why is it that God is so, uh, Point on this point, the attempt to represent the eternal one by material objects would lower man's conception of God. The mind turned away from the infinite perfection of Jehovah would be attracted to the creature rather than the creator. We cannot put God into a box. We cannot paint God. We cannot put God into some human, uh, uh, you know, structure that we can go, that's God. And there's a reason why all through the Bible, God has not said, this is exactly how I look and this is exactly how I'm made up. What God does reveal over and over is His character. That is the drawing card. That is the beauty of God. That is what God has made known to us, that He wants us to know Him for who He is. The third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why is this important? This commandment not only prohibits false oaths and common swearing, but it forbids us to use the name of God in a light or careless manner. With regard to its lawful significance, by the thoughtless mention of God in common conversation, by appeals to Him in trivial matters, and by the frequent and thoughtless repetition of His name, we dishonor Him. Quoted in Psalms, holy and revered is His name. All should meditate upon His majesty, His purity and holiness, that the heart may be impressed with a sense of His exalted character and His holy name should be uttered with reverence and solemnity. In fact, the uh, Jewish people would not talk uh, openly using the Word of God. They wouldn't. It was a sacred word. When they wrote 
whenever they were writing the Bible, they would get a special pen whenever they wrote the name of God. That's how revered the name of God was. And it's interesting how easy when we start to deride or use God's name in a way that subjugates Him. Holy is His name, says the Bible. Now, God is not giving these laws to go, fear me, you know, subjugate. He's a killjoy. God has given these laws to bring us into a deeper relationship with Him. Amen? The fourth commandment, which is the longest. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall do what? Labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And I'll just skip through. It's a long commandment. But let's take a look at what patriarchs and prophets says about the commandment. The Sabbath is not introduced as a new institution, but as having been founded at where? Creation. It is to be remembered and observed as the memorial of the Creator's work. Pointing to God as the maker of the heavens and the earth, it distinguishes the true God from all false gods. All who keep the seventh day signify by this act that they are worshippers of Jehovah. In other words, what God did in Genesis 1 is He worked six days. Who worked? God. Did man work? And on the seventh day, when He had Adam and Eve, He says, now rest in everything I did for you. Right? Did you get that? So every seventh day, and He says in Genesis 2, every seventh day, you are to pause and reflect on the work that God has done for us as our Creator. Fast forward to the life of Christ, the very same God who said, let there be light. Here comes Jesus on the earth and he does all the work. And what day does Jesus die on? The sixth day. And he says, it is finished on the cross. On the cross, the same God who did the work of creation, did the work of redemption. And on the sixth day, he says, it is finished. In Genesis 1, he says, it is finished. And then on the seventh day, what did Jesus do? He rested in the grave as a memorial of our redemption. Who did all the work for our our creation? God. Who did all the work for our redemption? God. Every seventh day when we come here, when we pause, when we put aside work, we are saying with our actions, God is our creator. God is our redeemer. There is no other gods. I worship him. The Sabbath is the day to remember what God has done for you. It is a holy convocation given at creation. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. We now move into the relationship of the law. In fact, when we look at the law, we have the law that's related to our relationship with God and then the law that's related to our relationship with each other. What does that make? And it was on the cross that Jesus Christ fulfilled those two two elements of the law in perfection. Love for His God and His fellow man in power. And here, as we look at this fifth commandment, running through it quickly, parents are entitled to a degree of love and respect which is due to no other person God Himself, who has placed upon them a responsibility for the souls committed to their charge, has ordained that during the early years of life, parents shall stand in the place of God to their children. And when we study this law, in fact, David even says, he says, I love to meditate upon your law. Now, that's interesting. I mean, if I was to say to you, oh, I just really, really love reading government laws, just really excites me. What are you going to think about me? I'm really bored, aren't I? But David says, when he reads the Ten Commandments, he says, I meditate upon them. I sit there, I think about them. I love to think about the law of God, which is interesting. Because David understood that when he looked at the law, he was looking at the very character of God. That is why he loved them. You shall not murder. All acts of injustice that tend to shorten life. I want you to notice this. This is a pretty powerful statement because when we think about this commandment, we think about not murdering or not killing. We don't really think about how that impacts ourselves. And I want you to notice this. All acts of injustice that tend to shorten life, the spirit of hatred and revenge or the indulgence of any passion that leads to injurious acts towards others 
or causes us even to wish them harm, quoting Jesus, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, a selfish neglect of caring for the needy, did you get that? Or suffering or self-indulgence or the unnecessarily deprivation or excessive labor that tends to injure what? All these are to a greater or lesser degree violations of the sixth commandment. Wow. It says don't murder, but also says don't murder yourself. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This commandment forbids not only acts of impurity, but sensual thoughts and desires or any practice that tends to excite them. Friends, we live in a, in a, in a, in a society today that is laced with lustful things. I mean, you know, whether it's the computers or anything, we live in a world where Satan is bringing that into the minds of men. Jesus says, any man that even looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery already with her in his heart. Do we live in a time where we need to guard our minds? God has called us to a higher life. He says, purity is demanded not only in the outward life, but in the secret intents and emotions of the heart. Christ, who taught the far-reaching obligation of the law of God, declared the evil thought or looked to be as truly sin as the unlawful deed. And it's a scary thing when we justify the actions in our life and we play with sin. And this is one of the biggest points I want to make to you. When it comes to sin, now the Bible says sin is the transgression of the law, right? It's basically saying, no God, I don't want your law, too restrictive, I'll do what I want to do. That's sin, right? And what we do as Christians is we have things in our life, we, there's things right now in our life that we know is sin, but we go, oh, look, it's not a big deal, right? It's okay, I'll just leave it there, or it's not a big deal, or I can handle it, it's only occasionally. And what Jesus says when it comes to sin, if anything causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Jesus understood, don't play with sin. It is a powerful thing. It will rip you away from God. How many sins did Adam and Eve commit before they were cast out of the the garden? How many sins did Lucifer commit before he was cast out of heaven? How many sins do you need to hold on to to not enter the kingdom of heaven? Give them to God. Give them to God. You shall not steal. Both public and private sins are included in this prohibition. The Eighth Commandment condemns man-stealing and slave-dealing. So don't have slaves, okay? And forbids wars of conquest. It condemns theft and robbery. It demands strict integrity in the minutest details of the affairs of life. When we think about our own lives, how easy is it to steal or pirate or to nick things? Or you're at the supermarket and the lady accidentally gives you $5 change over. What do we do in those moments? Does the law of God impress us to live that law of love, to love that person and that business owner and to give that money back? Ninth commandment, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. False speaking in any manner, every attempt or purpose to deceive our neighbor is here included. An intention to deceive is what constitutes falsehood. By a glance of the eye, a motion of the hand, an expression of the countenance, a falsehood may be told as effectually as by words. All intentional overstatement, every hint or insinuation calculated to convey an erroneous or exaggerated impression, even the statement of facts in such a manner as to mislead is falsehood. This precept forbids every effort to injure our neighbor's reputation by misrepresentation or evil surmising, by slander or talebearing. Even the intentional suppression of truth by which injury may result to others is a violation of the ninth commandment. So as we see, we have the letter of the law, but the spirit of law, as Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount, he exaggerates upon what these laws constitute. I know what you're thinking, and I'm going to bring this point up as we close after this, that put your hand up right now if you feel like you're failing in these 10 commandments. Okay, good, I'm not alone. Good, okay, one more. 
Tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, etc., etc. Okay. The tenth commandment strikes at the very root of all sins. It strikes at the very root of what? Isn't that interesting? Prohibiting the selfish desire, which is sin, selfish desire, from which springs the sinful act. He who, he who, in obedience to God's law, refrains from indulging even a sinful desire for that which belongs to another will not be guilty of an act of wrong toward his fellow creatures. And it's interesting, when we looked last week at the Exodus, what, what causes us to be disgruntled is when we're not right with God, when we're not filled with God, when we don't have the Word of God that truly fills our hunger we start to hunger for other things. We start to covet other things. We start to look for other things. And what happens sadly in the children of Israel is they started to look at the nations around them and say, oh, we want a king like their king. We want to have the things that they have. We want to be like them instead of looking to God as their source of fulfillment. All of these are summarized in loving God and loving your fellow man. And I want to look at one point just to finish. As we saw in the covenant, the video in the beginning, as God shook the hands with Israel and he said to them, keep my commandments, you know, love me and love your fellow man. And they said, everything you say, God, we will do. Did they? Do you? No. So what's the chance? I want you to notice Galatians as we close what we're trying to say. Galatians chapter 3. And there's a really cool text that Paul draws us to when he talks about this covenant. This agreement that God has with the children of Israel and with you and I, all those who enter the covenant with God. In Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 15 to 18. God talks here about this covenant, this agreement, and he talks about the fact that it will not be fulfilled by us. We won't be able to keep our end of the bargain. In fact, the entire Old Testament, this is a bit of a uh, spoiler alert for the rest of this series, but Israel fails, right? Notice what Paul says in Galatians 3, 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one set, sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now notice this. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his, what? Seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is who? Christ. What Paul is saying here, he's saying, look, we're looking back now, Jesus has come, and we've realized something very important, that all these handshakes that God made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the children of Israel, as he shook their hands and says, I'll be for you, I will not let you go, I will love you unconditionally. And they said, yeah, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. Fail, 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 fail. How often in our own lives we go, yes, God, fail. But the new covenant, what's new about the new covenant is this, is that Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, and shook the hand with God and kept the covenant perfectly as a human being for us. Amen? Because how many of you would like to have a go at that? I would fail. But what's really awesome about what God is doing with the new covenant, what he's doing in our lives today, is he's not thrown his law aside. His law stands as the eternal principles of God. It is his character. It is his standard for our life, for our righteousness. This here is the standard for our lives. God has done something powerful. There's nothing bad about the old covenant. It's good, but the new covenant's better. What makes it better? Notice Hebrews 
chapter 8. Because the Bible says that we fall and fall and fall when we, in our own strength, in our own what? Strength, try and keep the law of God. But what God is doing is something beautiful, something powerful. In Hebrews chapter 8, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, near the book of James, Hebrews 8, chapter 7 to 10. Here Paul talks about the new covenant, the new agreement that God has with you and I. Hebrews 8, verse 7 to 10. And he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He got, he, uh, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. Verse 9, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my what? So basically Paul is saying this. He says, look, all through the Old Testament, they didn't keep the covenant. God knew they wouldn't keep the covenant. Here he says, you're going to fail at it. But notice this. Verse 9. I took you out They did not continue my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their where? They're mine, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is working today in you and I. He wants His standard of love in our lives. But when we try and keep it ourselves, when we grit our teeth and say, oh, I'm just going to discipline myself and if I just work really hard at this, I can do it and I can keep it and I can just, you know, if I work hard, that's what the Pharisees fell into. What Paul is saying is this, is the power to keep God's commandments comes from a God who places the law in your heart. And what this means is this, your nature my nature, our nature in and of itself is self-centered. Would you agree? Self-centered. I want to do what's good for me. If you get in the way, too bad. That is sin. That's the virus in your heart. But what God has promised to you and I is this. He says, you don't even have the capacity to love me truly or your fellow men without a miracle happening in your life. And what I'm going to do, this is the promise I make with you, is that I'm going to take the law and I'm going to place it in your heart. I'm going to give you the, a new motivation in your life to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm going to write my laws in your mind and in your heart and it'll, your heart will beat differently. And it's amazing when the power of the gospel comes into people's lives, you start to see a life that was heading this way start to turn and head this way. How do you explain that? By the power of God. And you start to love and you start to care. That is God writing his law in your heart day by day, bit by bit, hour by hour. As we connect to him, he moves upon the life and he moves into our hearts and he changes who we are. That's the awesome thing about the new covenant is that we keep it because we are saved. We're so appreciative. We're so full of grace. We're so full of love. When we contemplate the cross of Christ, that it compels me to live my life for God. It's not natural. Why would you give your money to the poor? Why would you care about that? Because God's in your heart. And Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I do now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died for me. In other words, I'm not Paul anymore. Christ is in me. And the goodness, the goodness you see in my life, it's because God is writing his law in my heart. I can't explain it. That's the power of the gospel. We are carnal but God has put His Spirit in our hearts. And I love this statement from uh, Ty Gibson. I was reading the little truth link study, number 11, and he said, Within a new covenant relationship with God, we do not keep the law as a means of earning salvation, but rather as the love motivated outgrowth of the salvation we have as a free gift in Christ. 
We come to church every seventh day because we are saved, not to be saved. We place God first in our life. We don't blaspheme his name. We do all these things because when we're connected to the vine, he produces the fruits because I can't produce them in my own strength. And sometimes we fall into trying to do it on our own and you know what happens? You'll fall and you'll fall and you'll fall and you'll fall. But when you connect to God and you place your relationship with God as the priority of your life, He will start to produce the fruits in your life. The righteousness of God. God has called the children of Israel, to be a light to the world. And he's called us to be a light to the world. You are the light of the world, he says. Anyone who lights a candle doesn't hide it under a basket, but he let its light shine to all men that they may glorify your Father. Right? The purpose of your life is not to just get up and go to work. Yes, you have to do that, but you've been called as a holy people, a peculiar people, a holy nation of God to represent him to a world that is blinded to who he really is. What a privilege it is to allow God to write his law, his character in your heart that when people are around you, they start to enter an atmosphere of heaven. Is that a privilege? You are the light of the world, just like Israel was the light of the world. It's your purpose. It's your calling. It's what God has called you to, to live a life with the Ten Commandments lived out in your life as you love your God and you love your fellow man. That is what it means to be the light of the world, is to reflect the character of God each day. But take heart. Because you will fall occasionally and you will fall down. But God says that I will write my law in your heart. I will give you the strength to do it. I will work in your life day by day. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your law, time, fails to truly dig into the depths of the Ten Commandments, the character of God. I pray more so that we, as we go away, that we are challenged to study and to look and and compelled to learn more of who you are. And to say, as David said in the Psalms, that I delight to do your will, O God, my law or your law is within my heart. Lord, I pray that as we look at the law, that it becomes a delight to us, that we wish, we will, we want to walk in your precepts, Lord. I pray that you'll use us to be a light to a world that doesn't understand your love. And may your love be revealed through us each day in the things that we do. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.